Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. The word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father God, this is um, your word, and it comes to us without error, that it speaks exactly what you would have it to speak, that Paul wrote exactly the words, exactly in the way that you would have him to, and that this is where we experience you. This is not just a book with information about you. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is not just a class we are in when we are teaching the contents of the Bible to disseminate information. If we believe that, we miss the true nature of the church and the true nature of your word. So Lord, we pray that we would experience you during this time of worship and during this time of reading your word. And so Lord, we thank you and we pray this, that you would bless the preaching and hearing of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And today's sermon I've called um, The Two Advents. And I, I stole this from, um, not the whole sermon, but the title and some of the information as I was listening to a sermon from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, um, you know, it, it's all, in my head, this is all done with a, uh, an English accent, so it's much better. So just, um, if I were very good at imitating accents, I would, I would do it, but I'm not, so I won't. But hear it in an accent, it'll be much better than my accent. Um, but um, the word Advent comes from the Latin, which means um, the coming or the arrival of. And it's usually something big. You have the Advent of spring. That means the coming of spring. And, of course, at this time we talk about the Advent of Christ. It's a time um, with the church in the liturgical church where they have certain times where they look at different things. And we use it too because Christmas is what Dr. Kick would call low-hanging fruit, which is a very good time for the world. It's kind of looking in, so take advantage of it. And so uh, the, the time before Christmas is looking forward to his coming as they were uh, before he came. And so now we're going to talk about these two advents. So we have to remember that what the first advent was, was the coming of Christ as a human, the coming of the Lord and Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming as a human, as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. And if you haven't picked up on that over the past month or so, you've missed it. But it also refers to what we call the incarnation, and it comes from the word... Um, um, the, the, where we get the word carnivore, so kids really like dinosaurs, and some of them are carnivores, which means they are meat eaters, and that's where that word flesh comes from. They're actually flesh eaters, and so to become enfleshed is what we mean by the incarnation. So the Son of God became man. He became incarnate. He, became, he was enfleshed. God became flesh, a true human. 
It's a great miracle, and it's the first advent. And it had to happen. It had to happen, or all mankind, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every baby, would have been born, and that would have been born would perish in hell forever. It is a very serious event, to say the least, that the importance and necessity of God becoming man to save those who believe from hell. And this is the clear teaching of the Bible. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. If you miss this, then you miss everything. And if you miss this, if you miss the importance and that the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of the world is the cross and resurrection, the life of Jesus Christ, God become man for the salvation of sinners. If you miss that and you teach or preach anything other than that, the Bible says you are to be called, and even if an angel from heaven comes and says that, it is anathema. It is to be called accursed. That is no gospel. It is worse than useless. It condemns people to hell. It literally a message without Christ, who is the Son of God, become man, dying on the cross for our sin and being raised to life on the third day. If the gospel does not include all of that, then your message is worse than no message. It damns people to hell. Jesus came to save his people, all the believers in him. That's what the Bible teaches. The purpose of his first coming was to live and to die on the cross and to be resurrected on the third day and to ascend to the Father in heaven. He was a perfect sacrifice to God for our sins. Most of the religious leaders of his day that lived in his area, these were the, the Jewish religious leaders of his day who had the word of God, who had the prophecies, who had the oracles, who had the sacrifices, who had everything to point them to Jesus Christ, weren't looking for a meek and mild savior. They were not looking for that. They were not looking for a suffering servant to save them, but they were looking for a powerful warrior king because this is how David came. So if you have a king is coming, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, the king is coming to save his people, as the Bible foretells, well, we know how that has to look. It's going to be militaristic. The great conquering superpower of the evil Roman Empire who had subjugated Israel would be put down and the world would be taken over by Christ, by the Messiah, when he comes. So they looked for political and military power, not a poor prophet who refused to fight against Rome, who um, said his kingdom is not of this world. They weren't looking for that. And then they couldn't believe a humble man of God who taught people to turn the other cheek when they were offended and who actually taught his followers to, to love their enemies and then when he claimed to be the son of man and claimed to be the son of God, when he claimed to be the I am, they lost it. Because this is not, they're going after this man who is clearly not the king we're looking at for. 
And now he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the son of God, the son of man, and we have to put an end to this. And even worse, it's quite possible many of the leaders even knew this was the king, the Messiah, and they still wanted their power maintained and his put down. But he claimed to be the way, the truth, the life. The only way to the Father was through him, and it was all way too much. Maybe if he were a mighty warrior king... A mighty warrior king who was going to make Israel great again, maybe they would have followed him. If he would rebuild their armies, if he would help them take over the world, then maybe. But this Jesus that they get, a poor, lowly servant, a suffering prophet, He could not be from God. It wasn't what they expected at the first advent. But he did come to defeat sin. He came for the purpose of defeating sin and for taking over the entire world. But it was on the death, it was with his death on the cross. And without the defeat of the curse, sin's sting is still for all. He came to do something mightier and more powerful than they had the ability to be able to imagine. So that now for those who have faith in Christ, we can say, where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? That death is swallowed in victory on the cross. Death is swallowed in victory. John Owen entitled a great work of his, that Puritan writer, um, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. But God's word says death is swallowed up in victory on the cross so that we who are mortal, that means, you know, if you superhero stuff, you're a mere mortal. That means you're going to die. You can, you can be subject to death. So those of us who are mortal might be, by dying, be swallowed up by life. What the Bible says, that's what death is. The mortal being swallowed by life for the believer. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the blessed hope that the Bible tells us about. Jesus came just as the Old Testament prophets foretold, but the religious people of his day could not imagine it. The truth that God's own son would become one of them and humble himself by taking the form of a servant and by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross... The shameful and cursed death on the cross. It's just, there's no way that this was in their mind as far as what could be God's plan. So God, at his first advent, shocked a world that should have seen it coming, but just couldn't. And so it shall be at his second advent, at his second coming. Christ will not come as many today expect. Um... And I'm not talking about those who don't believe, who have no sense of the reality of these things, but who just simply are religious people. But how do they imagine his coming and how do they see him today? And some perhaps still see him as a baby in a manger. They know he's, he grew up and stuff, but still this is you know, Christmas time. It's a very uh, a tame Jesus. 
You know, there was that stupid movie. I saw parts of it. Ricky Bobby, I guess, was his name. He worshipped the baby Jesus. And it's like, and as, you know, sacrilegious as a lot of that was, it makes an excellent point because a lot of people today worship the baby Jesus. They just see him as a man, but they still see him as infant, lowly, infant, mild, and he couldn't harm nobody. Look at him. You know, I mean, it's really ridiculous when you start to hear a lot of people's concept of who Jesus Christ is, but it really comes across that way. But Christ will not come as many expect. So there are a lot of people whose idea of Christianity really never goes beyond Christmas. It's all about gifts and presents and feeling good and romance and all these things. And even for the believer, it can remain a faith in a God who is gentle and he will come meekly and he will come softly just as he did the first time. And perhaps um, most just think of Jesus, and I'm talking again about religious types of today, that they think of, of him where their faith maybe goes all the way to the cross, but then it stops there. That that's where where he remains is on the cross. And so these people see the terrible punishment for sin. They they recognize that sin is horrific, that it required the death of Jesus Christ. And and for us it's true that he took the terrible punishment for sin on the cross. And it was terrible. But then you look at the suffering Jesus on the cross and we know that we too must suffer and we know that we too must bear our own cross and we know these things are true. But some people can only see the terrible punishment due for sin and therefore they can't see the grace and the mercy that's given to us in that. He's on the cross. And their Christianity is all about sin, sin, sin. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Do better and God will love you more. Look at him on the cross suffering. We too must suffer. You have to do better. You must do less of this. Do more of that. Follow the rules. Hate sin. And you might not say it, but you get it. Hate sinners. The problem is out there. And it's with some of you guys and I can look at you and tell because you don't dress right. You don't cut your hair right. You don't have the right translation of the Bible. You, um, you watch, you have a TV in your house. You might even have one in the sanctuary with you. And it's shameful. You should all be ashamed. And this is the church a lot of people want. If it's the church you grew up in, it, you either hate it and reject anything to do with that idea, or that's how you got saved, and all churches should be like that, yelling at you, fussing at you, mocking you, telling you you can do better, and if you can just clean yourself up, at least externally, God will love you more, and you'll fit in with us. And then you get yelled at. Follow the rules. Hate sin. Hate sinners. Maybe God will love you. Maybe God will love you. But even that love can be harsh. 
a harsh sort of love that comes from the Jesus that stays on the cross. Certainly not a Jesus who's gentle and lowly of heart. Not the Jesus of the cross. And then that's the type of love you get from those people. It is a love. They don't accept it. They just have earned the right to exist and be elevated by others in their religious circle. And if you can play the game, you can be too. But there always has to be, this is like racism, there always has to be some group that's below you, some group that's just not good enough, and look at us how we're better. And so they stay stuck with Jesus on the cross. There's still others that go to the resurrection, and then they stop there, the risen Christ, and they focus only on the risen Christ. And it's all about hallelujah, you are freed from death. And these things are all true. We too have risen from our tombs, and now it's all about grace. And from these churches or these people, you will hear grace, grace, grace. And I shouldn't say these churches. I mean, there are individual churches that preach wrong things. But I'm really talking more about individual Christians who think of the Bible and Christ in these ways that only have the resurrected Christ. They don't speak of obedience at all because how horrible that other way of talking was. We're not like that. So we don't have, you don't have to obey Christ at all because you're saved. We speak only of life and love in him. We speak not of repentance because that was done initially by when you become a believer. But now there's no repentance. There's no sin. There's nothing but grace, grace, grace all the time, time, time. Live as you want. Now there's going to be certain rules. We're going to, I don't know if I go that far with it. But the reason people live in sin is because they don't understand grace. And there's truth to these things. But if you stay focused there, where all you need to understand is grace, you too have a stunted understanding of the totality of of the gospel. So if you're looking to your resurrected reality, your guilty conscience is the only thing holding you to the grave. So be free and fly. Look not to rules or to morality. So I've spoken of a second advent, the second coming of Christ, and some stop there and focus on the coming Christ. When will he come? When will this be? You have entire ministries and, and people who, it, they know their eschatology, their study of end times, better than anything else. They split denominations. They split seminaries. They split everything based on are you pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, historic pre-mill, historic ah-mill, all these things. And that's what they focus on. And as soon as they hear you disagree in some detail on some idea of the coming of Christ in the future, you're out. I don't believe anything else you have to say because you're wrong about that. A thing of which God himself says no man knows the hour. There's a good bit of mystery. Anytime I find something in Scripture that good Christians, strong Bible-believing, Jesus, Trinitarian, gospel Christians find a diversity of disagreement on, that's a time when you have to say, all right, we need to tread a little lightly. But 
but many people are so focused on the future coming of Christ in whatever way it might manifest itself that they could care less about this world because all they want to look at is he's coming, he's coming, he's going to set everything right. The end of the world's coming. You need to know the end of the world's coming. You need to know there's judgment. It's like, good, for what purpose? What do we do? What do I do with that now? Well, it's all, and it's not even looking forward to heaven. It's just looking forward to judgment when finally all this is going to be set right. And see, there's a certain amount of different reasons. Fear, um, anger at the world, all these sorts of things. But we have to be careful where we put our focus. And this is where Paul's letter to Titus here is so important. So look again, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And what Paul is telling, telling him, he says, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So verse 11 is the past. You had the incarnation, you had the death, the resurrection. It's important. You need to understand that, that the grace, and it's grace. You didn't deserve this. And what's it mean for all people? And what he means for all people are all peoples, all types of people, not just Jews, Gentile as well, because then we know the Bible teaches that for all who are in him, all who have faith in him, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Start there. Rest in that. You need to know that. That's what Christmas was. That's what um, Good Friday is. That's what uh, Easter, we call it, is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death Burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all a part of the gospel. It's important. He brought salvation. And what does that do? How do we live now? Well, that grace of God trains us. And training is where you do something over and over again so that you get good at it. How do you get good at living the Christian life? How do you become more like Christ? How do you do it? By the grace of God. Understanding the grace of God in our salvation trains us for the Christian life. Okay, what, so therefore, what would the Christian life look like? Well, what does it train us to do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So what should we be doing? We should be renouncing ungodliness. We should be renouncing worldly passions. And I, heard, I saw a, a clip of a video. I don't know who it was. All I know is what they said in this tiny little clip was very good. They said that whenever I see someone living as a believer and they're living their life in a way that is in sin in some way, it's gone off the course in some way, that was a person who was not being discipled. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> it's like, that's a person. And what they meant by that is there was, no, there was no real Christians in their life who were sitting there saying, wait a minute, what are you doing? You know, or maybe, you know, they got off and they are discipling them and they'll be brought back. But um, this works in a church. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and the Bible talks about how we do this with one another. But we should be renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. And we should live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? Now, in this present age. Now, that can sound like the church that's saying it's all about rules, it's all about regulations, and, but those things are man-made. What God is teaching us is he trains us by his grace. We train people by rules and regulations and admonitions. God uses rules. He uses admonitions, but based on his grace and his great love for 
us. It's something that you have to live and understand and walk in and be immersed in, or you will be very unbalanced, either focusing on Christ as a baby, Christ as suffering on the cross, Christ is coming one day to punish sin, and you won't get the entire message of the gospel, which is that grace of God, which came for salvation. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. So here's what you guys need to do. Here's what we need to do. Live self-controlled lives. It's okay as a believer to say, I need self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And if you see somebody who's living out of control, as believers, we're supposed to go in love to those people and by yourself, don't go to everybody else and start talking about them because then somebody needs to go to you and talk to you about gossip. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, this guy in the church over here is doing this thing. You need to say something to him. And um, Amy reminded uh, me of, um, there's a, a politician, Jim Clyburn, that I disagree with politically, but the best political ad I've ever seen. <laughs> he said uh, when he was a little boy, he was riding down the road, and uh, they saw a, a tree that had fallen down in the way. And he said to his dad, Dad, somebody needs to move that tree. And he looked at him, and he says, well, son, you're somebody. <laughs> you know, go do it. So when somebody comes to you and says somebody needs to do something, somebody needs to say something, you go, well, you're somebody. Why don't you go to that person and say something to them? Because that changes things. Don't do it in a text for goodness sake. Face to face, eyeball to eyeball, ex experience what it means to be in the presence of another person and look them in the eye and say, and if you can't do it, then back off and keep your mouth shut. Or ask somebody to help you figure out how to deal with this. But don't turn it over to everybody else as if it's some kind of a gossip thing that you're just mad about. And if they don't listen to you, Matthew 18 talks about all this. Get a couple other Christians to go with you. If they don't listen to that, tell it to the church. Bring it to the leaders. And if they won't listen to even that, then the leadership has to deal with those people. In love, in grace. Because we're supposed to be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live upright, self-controlled, godly lives in the present age. And none of us can do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. We're all going to fail. We're all going to fall short. We all need the grace of God. We all need to understand that. It is no excuse to live in an undisciplined way. Even though we all do at times. So he goes on though. Because he tells us there's a future. And Hebrews is all about this. Looking to this future hope that helps us. How do we do this? We're waiting for our blessed hope. Now listen, this is the second advent. This is the, coming, the second coming of Christ who will not come as people expect him. But listen how the Bible says he's coming and expect that. And then you're on the right page. And he says we're waiting for our blessed hope. They're appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Let those words resonate. They're not there just because you've, you've, you've got to make it more interesting. You're waiting for your blessed hope, the appearance of the glory. When he comes, he'll come in glory. A great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself, for, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So we've been purchased from sin. You're no longer under that bondage. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous. We're supposed to be zealots. For what? 
good works. <laughs> that's what he's telling his believers. That's not a preacher up here saying you need to dress right, think right, look right because we hate everybody else and they aren't like us. And unless you can be like us, you're not going to be good and God's not going to love you. That's not what it's saying. It is, don't you want to be better? Don't you want to have good works? Don't you want to have self-control? Don't you want to be Christ-like? Don't you want to be able to deal with the problems in your life in a self-controlled way? So, Because if you're not self-controlled, that means something else is controlling you. And we want to, to be able, we want to have good works. And then he says, Titus, you need to declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Wait a second. You just got through talking about grace. Now you're talking about exhorting and rebuking with authority. We don't want authority. We want to be left alone. You shouldn't ever exert authority. God forbid we exert any authority. And it's just like, but it's what people long for. Your children need you to be an authority in their home. Be a daggum authority over your children. And I'm not necessarily talking to people in here unless you're guilty of it and examine yourself and see if you are. But a problem in the world is people don't want any authority over them. And God is an authority over us. And he has placed leaders in authority over us. And we're to be subjected to those authorities. The husband's ahead of the wife. The husband is to be Christ-like. You love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself. You give yourself for your wife. And then wives are to be submissive under that economic relationship. Equal in power and glory before the Lord. You're not better. You're not worse doesn't mean one has more faith than the other. It just means we're going to live the way the gospel has told us to live, and we're going to do our best with it, and we're going to try to be self-controlled, and we're going to see what it means to love one another and to help purify one another, not in some legalistic way, but in a real, true way. Um, one of the things you used to do the taekwondo, martial arts, and if you go to a martial arts school that really kind of doesn't know what it's doing, all they ever do is kick and punch and fight, because anybody can do that. So when you go to a church that really doesn't know the Lord and the gospel, all it talks about is, you know, basically kicking, punching, and fighting. It talks about external obedience, not about relationship. Because you can be in another church, all they talk about relationship, but it's in a fruity, fruity little way. It's all about relationship. Wait a second. It's about relationship with the living God who's going to return in great power and glory. So you have to have this full Jesus, everything. The gospel is more than any one aspect of Jesus. It's the entirety of who he is. Only those who are looking forward to this coming of God in power and glory, and only those who are looking forward to his blessed coming in glory have any reason to celebrate Christmas because Jesus came to redeem to save a world already condemned. We have a God who loved the world by sending his son, a son who so loved the world that he humbled himself. He went to the cross and his father's love resurrected him. God's love sends his spirit to us and he's with us and he's going to come again. That's the good news. But those who will not embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will remain condemned. Now this is the tough part of the gospel. Not that any of that's not tough, but remember it's based on grace. So you're not earning his love, you are learning to live in it. And sin entangles and ensnares and holds us back from that. So we have to be careful with all that. 
but those who reject Christ will hate his second coming because it will be in power and great glory. They'll all be like Herod. They will not like the coming of another king, and they will do all they can to stop that. So we're going to go a few places a little quickly here in the Bible. So go to Revelation chapter 1. Read verses 4 and 8. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. This is John. He's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So that's it. He is. That comes first. They don't do, you know, was, is, and is coming. The one who is. He also, who was. He came and did things in the past. He currently exists. But he's not also the one who is, was, and will be, but the one, what, who is to come. He's coming. There is an advent. There is a coming of God. And he says, this is coming from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the gospel. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you when, who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This is how he's coming. Mighty angels in flaming fire. <laughs> Now, this is where you go a little, this is the, the reality, and we had to remember it, or we won't do evangelism right, and we won't appreciate the grace of God enough, because he's coming in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what was in there about judgment? And if we as a church, if we as a believer skip over that because we don't want to sound like those churches who are just condemning everybody, you have to understand there is condemnation outside of Christ. It's true. It's there. It's the Bible says it. We had to believe it. And this is true. God will come as judge. He's going to come as our savior. He's going to come as our blessed hope. We're going to love his appearing. But there will be those who will pray for the mountains to fall down upon them and they can't and they will perish. But there is hope for them as the gospel goes forth. And then just turn a few more pages over. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's last words to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is what, you know, Timothy's this young preacher and, and Paul's been mentoring him. And, and this is what he, he tells him to do. And it's his words for us. 
as well. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. He's always reminding us of the reality of judgment of God, but then the reality of the grace and glory of those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the reason we share the grace and the glory of Christ Jesus with people. Because there is judgment coming, and it would be a, a wrong God who does not. But how do we live in this present age? That's the thing. Loving people enough to share the gospel with them. Loving people enough to know that we all share in flesh. That we all need to walk in the spirit. That we all fall short of the glory of God. But in Christ Jesus, we're beloved, and we're held, and we're treated with grace and with glory. And we're able to be able to, to love others. Because verse 8 there says, The blessed hope of believers to love his appearing... So children of God, we need to fear not his return. We fear not the return of Christ. We long for it. We expect it. The Bible even says we're to rejoice and hasten the day. We're supposed to pray that it would come even more quickly. But we have to remember, woe to the world. The second advent will be for them final judgment. And that therefore we're to do all we can to, to reach them and to pray for them. If Jesus had not come then there is no savior if jesus does not return we have no hope so as we approach our time of communion now and we can turn to first corinthians chapter 11 and, and hear how it is proclaimed in this and if at this time if you happen to forget uh, to pick up the your communion the the little cups of wine and the bread they're back here in the back go ahead and, and grab one you don't have to be a member of this church just a, a baptized member of a, a gospel church that believes in the father son and holy spirit and, and these things that we've been preaching and you've been accepted by that church to the table of the lord so this table is is for you as well so first corinthians chapter 11 you remember we're talking about these two advents the first coming but there's a second coming, and in the meantime, we live here in between these two advents. We live in a time of great grace and mercy, and what are we supposed to be doing? Because this, when we're not here and we don't worship, this physically and tangibly teaches us what we missed. I didn't get to go to church and take communion. Well, there's more to church than just taking communion. Yeah, but that's what it's all about. It's all about eating and drinking and feeding upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about I'm with you and you're with me, but you have to be united in me by faith. 
So those who sit under this sort of teaching, they, they hear the call of the gospel, they need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation and that he came to save sinners and he will save all those who believe in him. For those who believe that, it's a great blessing. For those who don't believe it, it's, this is not good. And so if those people take and drink and eat, they're eating and drinking condemnation on themselves because they don't believe it. You're saying the very thing I need to live, I don't even believe in, and you're taking it, eating it, and drinking it, and you're eating, as the Bible says, and drinking condemnation to yourself. But for those who believe, this is what happens when you listen to the preached word. This is what happens when you, you sing the gospel, hear the gospel, believe the gospel a little more. When you, when you have the, the entirety of the gospel washing upon you, the Holy Spirit bringing you closer into communion with Jesus Christ, this is what it is. This is communion. This is what he gives us. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking, he's, he's actually chastising this church because they aren't loving one another, they aren't caring for one another. And he even says, when you take the Lord's Supper, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're taking because you don't love each other. The rich people go ahead and eat before the poor people can get there. And it's like, don't, wait a minute, don't you have food to eat and drink in? You know, if you're just hungry, go eat at home. Don't despise the church in this way. And he says, this is why some of you, you're not, you're not discerning the body. And this is why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. Because you don't understand that you are the body of Christ. That this represents, the, the, the bread and the wine represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But we are also called, he is our head and we are his body. We partake in this. And if we don't do life as believers together, then there's no wonder many of us are weak and many of us are ill. And I'm not talking about viruses. But if we don't care for one another, then anything can get us. It is easy for Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we have to remain close to one another and in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, Paul says this, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is our key verse for this message for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes so you are doing something today you are proclaiming the death of Christ what's that mean for me for sinners I need it you're proclaiming it who are we proclaiming it to and a lot of people will say to non-believers, well, then why don't we do it out there instead of in here? Because non-believers come in here too. That's fine, but that's not the purpose of worship service. The purpose of worship service is the gathering of believers. And, you know, outsiders come in, maybe they're not believers, and they're supposed to be able to hear the gospel. But we should be preaching the gospel out there and asking people to come in and worship with us in here. Okay? So you've got to be, otherwise you've got to change this to look like the world so that, they'll be a little more comfortable. You, get, you know, Don't make this more like the world so they'll be more comfortable coming in. Go out and evangelize people so that they're more like Christ and want to be around him. And then they're like, oh, this place is like a gospel place. 
This is where you guys get together and sing and talk and encourage and rebuke and exhort and talk about Jesus and worship him together as a body because this is what we'll be doing for the rest of eternity together, not out there by ourselves individually trying to be, I don't know, by ourselves, but worshiping as a body, proclaiming to the world, yes, as much as it hears, as much as it sees, proclaiming to our souls because we need to know this and proclaiming to the heavenly force, the spiritual forces in heavenly place, the demonic powers that desire to destroy and take you over and pull you back, your flesh that wants to grab you and pull you back, the world that wants to grab you and pull you back. You're like, no, death of Jesus Christ. And with him I've died. We proclaim that now. You proclaim what has taken place in the past, and we do it for how long? Well, as long as we're alive, but the church will exist until what? Until he comes. This next advent, he's a coming. One day. One day I'm going to see the Lord. You know, the last day for you is when you die, but maybe the Lord comes before that. But there will be a day when he comes and we proclaim this gospel that we belong to Jesus Christ and he belongs to us and the world and our flesh and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places who would condemn us can be damned because we will not be. Because he is in me and I am in him and he has done one of the most intimate things he can. He has said marriage represents Christ in the church. And then he says, I give myself to you. And I want you to do this when you come together. And if you have faith, spiritually, he is with us in this meal, and he meets with us. And one day, we'll see him physically at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he will partake with us. And even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you and pray that you will indeed, when we sing, holy, 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 that we will understand what it means and appreciate that we've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we, will, that we will better represent you in the world, that we'll understand the reality of judgment, but also understand the necessity of grace and love and mercy, that we'll be able to proclaim the gospel in a way that is true, but also that hopefully people can see in our eyes, if they look, they will see love and concern and not judgment and condemnation. So help us to remember, as we walk away from a Christmas season, that we're not walking away from you, that we walk always in your light, and we are to be the light. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.